Meditatio Newsletter, May 2020. I'm reading it from Bonneville. During the First World War, the British government was recruiting volunteers for its killing fields in France, and they used guilt to coerce them, such as the poster of a man with his son on his knee and the boy asking, what did you do during the war, Daddy? One day, maybe, but without the loaded tone, people will ask us what we did during the first big shutdown, or maybe it will be shutdowns. What, it was, what was it really like? And afterwards, was it hard? And if a child asks why it was called by COVID-19, we can say that co equals corona, V equals virus, D equals disease, and 2019 was when it began. The 2020 was when it knocked everyone into the beginning of a new vision of reality. It helps to have a name for it, even if we didn't and don't know much about it or how to cure it. Maybe it will take us decades to see its full meaning. Well, we will say wisely, it took us all by surprise and it was something of a mystery. As to the question, I personally would answer, I was in Bonveau, locked up in a beautiful prison with a group of very nice people. We were faithful to our existing rhythm of daily life, of prayer, work, and study, including meals and the occasional movie, which our ancestor Benedict wisely designed to take us through both good times and bad times. I stopped traveling except through the internet which was easier than flying, but earned no A miles. Because of the technology of online meetings, I've been busier than usual, working with our amazingly dedicated international team as we try to respond to the spiritual needs of our global community and of those who have met us for the first time through the crisis. In 10 days, we made a new website to help people face the new challenges, the spiritual path through the crisis which is still run by some of our younger teachers. We've had many meditation sessions online, dialogues with other faiths, intellectually stimulating teachers, uh, teachings by a variety of speakers. And we have begun streaming contemplative mass on Sundays with a large congregation from across the planet, an online yoga class and live meditations in our daily schedule. Through all this interaction with individuals and national communities, we've understood better how Bonvo is called to be a physical center of a community that has no walls or borders, no need for visas, and in which even the barriers of language can melt in the experience of deep silence. So we were contemplative, but busy. St. Benedict said, idleness is the enemy of the soul. We've not been idle, but we found ourselves more clearly becoming what we kind of already knew we were, a center of peace that is here to serve as a center for peace. The other question our descendants might ask is about meaning. Many are already impatient to know what impact it will have in the world. Will it change how we live, work, interact, respect the environment. It's too soon for answers. 
But from what Bonveau has taught me during these months, let me share some early reflections. I start with the thought of Simone Bay that struck me deeply recently. She said, every event in life is part of the language with which God speaks to us. All events are signs of God's love. If you drink a glass of water, the water is God's, I love you, to you. If you are two days in a desert and can find nothing to drink, your thirst is God's, I love you. When we learn this language at first, we think only of some events and that they mean I love you, the nice, desirable things that happen. But as we learn the language better, we see that the entire language, every event, means I love you. God has only this one thing to say, and God has no way of saying, I hate you, I want to punish you. This isn't an easy language to learn, but it could not be simpler. Keeping this in mind, struggling with the strange idea that COVID-19 could be a love message, let's try to reflect on what the message, I love you, might mean. The newest here. Do you remember movies of World War II that show people huddled around a radio listening intensely to the news. That was the early days of instant global communication. Before that, when major events happened, like wars or epidemics, people only really knew what was going on from what they saw in their towns or villages, the soldiers marching past or people dying. How this connected with news from other places was largely up to rumor, magic, and imagination. Life was local, which had advantages, but it could also be intensely limiting and oppressive. Now, rich and poor alike, we are global citizens. Yesterday, the BBC World Service had a sound clip from, of one of the million Rohingya refugees who are incarcerated in refugee camps in Bangladesh. The first cases of the virus had just been discovered there. And the prospect of infection spreading through those overcrowded camps is horrific. The man was speaking in his Burmese Rohingya dialect, but the words COVID-19 were clearly audible. Evidently he and we all face the same crisis and we know it and we have invented a universal name for it. Early in the 20th century, the Jesuit scientist Teilhard de Chardin and the Russian scientist Vladimir Venansky, who were coming from different perspectives, developed the idea of the newosphere. We're so familiar with this in practice today, with 24-7 news, Zoom, Instagram, the World Wide Web, that it hardly astonishes us. We live in this cocoon sphere of consciousness unconsciously. In physical isolation, we saw what a lifesaver communication technology is. The newosphere has now become more conscious and we must reflect on the meaning of a new kind of global communication. 
The Greek word nous means mind. So the noosphere is the sphere of the mind. The technology behind it may dazzle us, or we may get addicted to it, taking our cell phones to bed with us. But this crisis has made us wonder how this new immediacy of communication across space and time zones affects our way of living together as one large multicultural family. The newosphere has emerged from the biosphere, the physical world we share in which viruses spread. But this new sphere is at a higher level of consciousness. As I'm writing this at Bonveau, I'm looking out on the lake, watching the ducks and herons. I'm actually listening to the frogs as well now. If I was closer, I would also see the plump, swift fish. If I moved even closer, they would feel the threat instantaneously. They would turn on a sixpence, change in direction, take flight, rapidly obedient to each other, and all without anyone bumping into each other. How could they do this unless they possessed a common mind? So why not us too? We are conscious. We have more in common than divides us. We can form a football crowd or a meditation community. We can pack malls as consumers, get addicted to the same soap operas. We do, however, bump into each other a lot. But we can work together on ways to improve this. Is our common mind, our newosphere, evolving? Is the sphere of reason, conscious mind composed of intricate networks of interpersonal relationships, developing? Is it forming both through the glass of water we drink and the thirst we feel when deprived of it? Now, the materialists would say all this is just a product of technology and mind emerges from matter, complex matter. There is no proof of this, of course, but it has become a dogma of modern science. Whatever the cause may be, we are increasingly curious about this new consciousness and its implications. For example, it demands a higher moral responsibility because the risks it poses are as great as the benefits it promises. Fake news can be seeded in it like a virus. Confronted with his willful stupidity or falsehood, a brazen politician has only to make endless soundbite denials to eventually plant them as a possible truth in the mass mind. This is not the fault of technology, we cannot blame technology or a virus for causing distress. They are only causes. It is we who misuse good things for bad ends. The globalizing of human consciousness calls for global institutions. Perhaps a logical consequence of the evolving newosphere will be a globally respected moral authority. If so, we will find conflict ahead of us in the days ahead. Not surprisingly, dictators and dishonest leaders with totalitarian tendencies 
will oppose and undermine such global bodies by reviving outdated but still toxic nationalisms. In a spiritual analogy, it is the ego resisting the true self. But this is why it is easier now to speak about spiritual consciousness. Survival depends on it. In contrast to the modern dogma of reductionist materialism, a universal wisdom is re-emerging, rooted in a perennial philosophy that calmly says that mind does not arise from matter, but that matter is manifested by mind. This is not a philosophical abstraction of no practical value. Fundamental ideas shape the world. It seems, for example, that some leaders responsible for abolishing environmental controls and restarting the exploitation of non-renewable resources feel justified in doing this by their fundamentalist religious beliefs. They hold extreme biblical views about the seven days of creation and the imminent Armageddon that will precede the rapture. If an elect group are going to be beamed up soon, what difference does environmental damage make? Or believe that all human beings do not possess equal essential value. Some, the more successful, are worth more than others. Rational arguments can then be made for creating collateral damage, <coughs> sacrificing whoever you feel are less important. And of course, in such decisions, it helps to have God on your side. Believe in a God who punishes whoever breaks the rules that are made by his representatives and rewards those who keep them, and religion becomes a tyranny of the self-righteous. A glass of water shows that God loves you, and your thirst proves that God hates you. COVID-19 has shocked us into a new sense of human unity. As we watched how a simple, minuscule virus has no favorites and no enemies. Good and bad belong to humans, not to events. We've seen how human tragedy can be played for shameful political advantage. Yet we also see a daily outpouring of altruism and tenderness. Both extremes are visible at the click of a mouse. How we interpret it depends on the mind behind the hand controlling the technology. The crisis has shown us that we need to fund our healthcare but it also exposes the weakness of our education. Critical thinking developed by good public education opposes a tyranny that tries to prove that oppression is liberty and black is white. Technology can assist the development of a global mind and of a more just society. It can also be twisted to block both. But what if the common mind the unity of human consciousness is on the march and cannot be stopped from evolving? What if it manifests at certain stages of evolution, helped but not dependent on technology? This is an absurd idea 
to the materialistic mind, but it helps us to illustrate what we mean by the mind of Christ. Two quotations from the New Testament and one from the Upanishads. That this mind be in you as was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.5 Now I beseech you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you. Be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. 1 Corinthians 1.10 The self is one. Ever still the self is. Swifter than thought, swifter than the senses. Though motionless, the self outruns all pursuit. Without the self, never could life exist. The Isha Upanishad. To feel that we share in this universal mind at the deepest level of reality as described in these words, it's not necessary to try to know everything, to browse the internet all day, read every article, argue about every opinion, become a news junkie. It is necessary only to pay attention to one thing totally. Training our potentially infinite capacity for attention forms the contemplative mind in individuals who then come to see how they share equally in the whole of humanity. The contemplative mind is the birthright of us all. Meditation is for everyone. The political benefit of this is that contemplatives are not so easily manipulated or misled. Knowing what they really belong to makes them participate more responsibly in the democratic process. The personal impact of the COVID-19 crisis. Many people who did not fall sick or have people who are close to them suffering will shyly say they enjoyed some aspects of confinement. Even with anxieties about work or finances, they were able to follow a balanced daily schedule of exercise, reading, meditating, chatting online, doing things they liked at home, like baking or, or painting. They often felt relieved not to be rushing all day, commuting, jumping on and off planes or trains, shopping. Even though they also missed hugs and kisses, they benefited by this time of slower living. Others, however, with tendencies to depression or issues like anger or addiction, have found it excruciating. They brought the dark side to the fore and subjected them to much suffering. Everyone has learned something more about themselves. Some may even apply the self-knowledge they have gained to rebuild a healthier lifestyle. Confinement, enforced stability and simplicity, confronts us with our capacity to be simply content with what we have. Many political prisoners in the past, like Gandhi, 
Solzhenitsyn and Mandela witness to this. Monastic life builds degrees of solitude into its program of spiritual development and simple lifestyle. Spirituality, however we may define it, begins with the often lonely work of accepting what is. Denial, resistance, rage or violence do not change reality to match our preferences. Eventually, reality wins. It teaches us and we have to obey what is. Only then can we do good work for others. Until then, our efforts to change things are largely projections of fantasy or sheer willpower. And so at this basic level of accepting life as a spiritual journey, the crisis has been an awakening for many of us. Confinement and loss have served as a deeper call to acceptance, self-knowledge, and a spirit of service. The frustration of normal habits and desires led many of us to realize how to control anger, handle restlessness, acknowledge our addiction to distraction, expose our evasions, self-deceptions, and our tendency always to blame others. It has been a desert experience of more than 40 days, and it's not yet fully over. Perhaps we've glimpsed how our hunger for distraction, novelty, and stimulation contradicts our innate hunger for God. This is true, even if we do not have the word God in our vocabulary of meaning. God is present, and we thirst for union with God, named or unnamed, invoked or not. Spiritual hunger, then, is our most intimate longing, the reality check of all the distorted, compensatory desires that we pursue. It is also the great unifying bond between us all. If beauty, love, compassion, justice unite us across all differences, at the heart of them is the thirsty hunger for God. It is the great privilege of the human condition to feel it. If we accept it for what it is, it contains its own fulfillment. The deepest self-knowledge is not psychological awareness of our formative experiences and conditioned patterns of mind. This is important but the essential self-knowledge that affects permanent transformation and liberation is not find, found in our thoughts, memories, or imagination. It arises from a direct encounter with our being at source in utter stillness and silence. This may sound like an experience for the few, but it is much closer to us than we think and much more universally accessible. Sometimes suffering pushes us into this space when our efforts to find it have failed. The self-knowledge it then brings is the greatest asset we have in our quest to be happy and free. It may come as the glass of water or as the thirst, but it simply 
is. Knowing it once will forever change the way we cope with the swings of fortune that previously controlled and dominated us. We humans are a mass of paradox. We belong to one human family. What happens anywhere on our home planet influences each of us. But we are also locals embedded in the physical and cultural conditions of our home and immediate companions. We are also solitary in the sense of being unique and unrepeatable. And we are all ordinary too, however high we have risen or low we have fallen. We all need attention and love, even the hermit. Accepting this paradoxical ordinariness exposes our hidden glory and real value. This is the outcome, the humility of meditation. When they meditate, the most intelligent, powerful or famous people meet the same challenges as anyone else. Accepting our ordinariness and limitations unexpectedly becomes a strength and a source of encouragement. Solitude then expands into communion, experiencing equality, fraternity, and liberty of spirit. We begin to function maturely in community. The crisis of the past months can teach us these essential lessons of life when it is understood as a spiritual journey. In confinement, many people decided to learn something new, to restart a long abandoned task, to become creative in a new way. It is vital to develop until the end, to risk learning new things and to change old habits. As we are enduring it now, disruption of life feels cruel. But in time, it may also seem to be a kind teacher and a catalyst for change. Hard times have taught many of us already that they really can change. Our sense of self and our character traits can be repaired. It's never too late to have a conversion of heart. In the most challenging conditions, we are capable of transformation. Brain scientists say that plasticity is with us until the end of our lives. If we believe the Christian mystics, this continues even after the end, because in eternity, we are eternally transformed from glory to glory. Limitations accepted push back the walls confining us. Weaknesses become sources of strength, of grace from God. If this is true of us at a personal level, might it not be equally true for our communities, the church, our national and global institutions? Serpents and doves. When we pay attention to one thing, other than ourself or what concerns our self-interest, we become a foot soldier in the contemplative revolution. All the spiritual teachers of humanity have seen and shown this. 
But to build a contemplative practice into life means to work continuously, humbly to come to an ever purer degree of attention. At its fullest, purity of attention is the mind of Christ. The trick is not to see this as some kind of heroic task, but as a simple and ordinary one. Of course, it has an element of the hero's quest, but heroes are never as heroic as they are portrayed, and real heroes know it. To meditate is not to be heroic, but to be a disciple. This is a less flattering designation for the ego. So we resist discipleship. But dealing with the resistance leads to self-knowledge, which makes us humble and more useful to others. This moment is always a crossroad in our spiritual journey, and it returns periodically, regularly. If we make the right turn, we grow beyond anything we can imagine by becoming the person we exist in order to become. Is this also the crossroad where humanity finds itself now? The heroic path, mastering and exploiting the earth till its ecological balance collapses? The hyper-individualism of the warrior pursuing glory and ambition in politics and business, even when they hide behind green camouflage? Viewing the poor and the powerless as cannon fodder for the march of a jungle deviant of capitalism. Fueling greed, which is the illusion that we can have everything. Fueling it with gluttony, which is the attempt to stuff ourselves with everything, making ourselves sick. Losing faith in the existence of truth because we have sold our soul to falsehood. We have felt this for some time. We've also felt that a crisis was bound to come one way or another, through a financial collapse, a major environmental tipping point, a political collapse in totalitarianism. And this may be only the first of a series of crises that awaken us to the failure of our outdated view of civilization but it may also trigger a new vision of reality. Individually, we have to surrender egoism. Collectively, we need to sacrifice nationalism. Personally, we need to rediscover poverty of spirit. Economically, we need to let go of possessiveness and learn to share. Meditation guides us to moderation Materially, we need to reduce and simplify. The values of contemplative consciousness and the values of the new world order are aligned. The more radical the spirit of revolution, the less force it will use. The contemplative revolution uses no force. It does not market itself. Its leaders know they are flawed and admit it. 
Jesus said that to advance the reign of God, people would need to be as cunning as serpents and as simple as doves. It's a hard combination. It seems unlikely to succeed. But then, success is not what it's about. It's a strange goal and a weird time. But stranger things have happened. After all, as I read this, it's still the Paschal season, which recalls a very strange event and time indeed. And tomorrow is Pentecost Sunday. After that, we enter what we call ordinary time. But it's an extraordinary time, if we understand it. It means traveling as if we have arrived. Much love, Lawrence.